Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our sermon cast for Homeland Park Baptist Church. As we open our Bibles this morning, we resume with the, the fixed trial. Though there were accusations uh, that Jesus Christ would ultimately lead to his crucifixion. So in these scriptures, we will see a glimpse of those themes we still see today. We are going to see a trial that is rigged. We are going to see corruption. We are going to see envy. We are going to see political power because people will be hungry for power just as they are today and they lie to get their way depending on manipulation and presenting altered facts to attempt to work people to fit their agenda. We act like this is new when we see it today on our news screens, but they were doing it even back in Jesus' day. They were recruiting mobs. They were trying to indoctrinate them and to match their agenda so ultimately they could get their way. And uh, just on a personal note, I'm reminded of the way I feel many times where it seems like that there are people in office and making rules that uh, do not represent what uh, I believe and what the Bible says and Sometimes it's easy to feel like you don't have any chance or any change or the ability to change the outcome. But as we approach this trial of Jesus this morning, we would be tempted to think the same thing. But when we see how the trial is rigged and how it is fixed, one may conclude that there was no way Jesus was going to come out of this trial innocent. And so if you would look at that and you would look at this trial and say, this is not right He was innocent, but yet he is being railroaded again. You are right. But I would also say God's plan for your redemption is unfolding before your very eyes. God's plan for your redemption is unfolding before your very eyes. What I want to say about about that is that although we don't understand what's going on today, although sometimes we feel powerless in today's political realm. The truth of the matter is, in Jesus' time that we're studying about this morning, and even today as we read our news and live our lives, I want you to understand that God's plan for your redemption is alive and well, and it is unfolding before your very eyes. You see, the people that we will read about this morning, they believe that they have the ultimate power and say, but they are delusional. Everything that is happening in what we are reading this morning is supposed to happen. And everything has to happen the way it lays out because that is the only way that you and I can get forgiveness of our sins. Our redemption is tied up into this passage this morning. So at the end of the day, don't focus on the counterproductive actions. I mean, even though we may get in our groups and we may commiserate about how bad things are and the truth of the matter is, Everything, no matter how bad you think this world is, no matter how high the gas prices get, no matter how woke or unwoke our world gets, the truth of the matter is, is that let's keep in mind that everything is under God's control. So as we look at the scripture this morning, we are going to see that unfold. If you have a copy of God's word, turn to Mark chapter 15. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there is one in the pew in front of you. 
Or if you have a smartphone with the Bible app on it, you can read there as well. But I am reading out of the New Living Translation. And it says in Mark 15, we're going to read verses 1 through 5. It says, very early in the morning. That's key right there. Very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of religious law, the entire high council met to discuss their next step. So they already tried to start the trial and the accusations late that night when nobody was around. Now they're meeting early in the morning while everybody is still sleeping to try to push their agenda through. And says, they bound Jesus led him away and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, You have said it. Notice he didn't say yes. He just said, You have said it. Then the leading priest kept accusing him of many crimes. And Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges they're bringing up against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. So what we see here is the religious persecutors, they write the false narrative to convict Jesus. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are never going to get a fair shake. You are never going to get fair coverage. And you are never going to be fully represented in the areas that you wish you were represented Because there is always going to be people trying to switch the narrative on us. And look, I'm not trying to make out that we're a martyr or that that, uh, we're having some high calling here. But the truth of the matter is, I'm not talking about politics. I'm just talking in general, is that as long as churches are meeting like we are today, and we keep our meetings inside these walls, we keep our doctrine inside these walls, we keep our convictions inside these walls, the world's fine with that. But if we take our faith out into the world, that is when they start to struggle. So, as as we come to here, we see Jesus standing before Pilate. We are tempted to envision in our minds this nice, pristine view of Jesus, maybe in a nice, long robe with maybe a little bit of a beard, uh, his long hair, his, his piercing eyes, and he's, he's bound. But we, we get this real, uh, you know, nice, white, Anglo-Saxon view of who Jesus is. That's one thing that drives me crazy is when I see a picture of Jesus and they show this, this very white, pale emaciated man on a cross with a trickle of blood coming down, maybe his feet, his hands, or his side. That is not what it looked like. The truth of the matter is, it was very much more sinister than that. So, again, I said, as you look in your scripture, it said early in the morning, Pilate, what was Pilate doing? Pilate was a acting Roman governor. He was basically the Judge Judy of that area. He didn't have a jury. He didn't have people he had to answer to other than his higher-ups. But when it came to basically governing on this is right, this is wrong, this is guilty, this is not, this is you're going to be killed, this is you're going to live, all of these decisions, it wasn't much about fair representation. It was his opinion, his call, move on, give me the next case. And so what would happen is, is that, The pilot would begin his governing early in the morning. As soon as the sun would rise, 
he would start governing. And so these religious Pharisees, these religious leaders were trying to get Jesus first up on the docket. They wanted to get him accused, tried, convicted, and all the way to the cross before anybody really woke up and understood what was going on. And here's the thing. The Jewish leaders here, they needed Pilate. Pilate didn't need the Jewish leaders, but the Jewish leaders needed Pilate. Why is that? Well, the Jewish leaders, Rome had taken the right away from Jewish leaders to execute their own criminals. So here we are in Jerusalem, yet Rome is ruling over the Jews. And so Rome is saying, look, you can have your religious ceremonies, but we're going to make sure that people have, they, they get judged according to our process. So the Jews hated that. They hated the fact that they were invaded. They hated the fact that Rome was not letting them make their own decisions. They would have loved to be able to just take dispatch Jesus and be done with it, but they couldn't because if they would have, then it would have come back on them. And so Rome was ruling over them, so why would Pilate even have any reason to fear them? The truth of the matter is, Pilate did not fear the Jews. Matter of fact, he was the buzzword today as anti-Semitic. He really, he really didn't like the Jews, to be honest with you. He thought that they were uh, conniving. He thought that they were petty. He thought that they were uh, people that tried to use trickery, manipulators. He thought all of these things about him. So he's going into this kind of jaded. The fact is the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate with everything in order. So when the Jews, the, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, bring Jesus before Pilate, it is like, oh, hello, Pilate. We have got all the, all the I's dotted, all the T's crossed. Here is the case. Here's the paperwork. All you got to do is put your little signature on that or, or wave your hand, and we'll be done. We'll be out of your hair. I mean, they had everything ready to go. And this is one of the things that caused Pilate to, to be cautious because, again, he had no love for them. And then the Jews certainly had no love for Pilate or the Roman government. Regardless of Pilate's personal feelings, however, he still had to make a ruling because that was his job. So as we went back to the scripture, we started reading in verse 2, Jesus answered, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of Jews? And Jesus replied, you have said it. Or those of you that are King James Version he said, he answered, it is as you say. So in other words, he's giving a positive answer, but yet there's also an affirmation in that to what Pilate was saying. So here is the false narrative. We all know about false narratives, don't we? We've got the truth. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the best lie is one that has a part of truth in it. So this is the false narrative that the religious leaders were spinning. The religious leaders knew if they brought Jesus to Pilate and the claim was that this man is claiming to be God. If that is what they brought to Pilate, Pilate would have said, <laughs> he's claiming to be God? I have no problem with that. Matter of fact, he can join our gods. Our, and in Roman culture, we have many gods. And, and if it's worth it, we'll actually even build him a temple. He had no problem. They knew that they would have no problem with him claiming to be God. But... That is not what they brought to Pilate, is it? He said, we are bringing you to this man because he claims to be king. 
The false narrative was this. They knew that if he came to be a God of the Jews, or that he is God, they wouldn't have had a problem with it. But when they said he came to be king of the Jews, there's that threat. There's that threat that he's going to overtake Rome, that he's in some type of competition with Rome and with Pilate and with the king. And so what they do here is they basically label Jesus a terrorist. He is starting an insurrection and he is going to mount up against the Jews, mount up against the Romans, and he is going to overthrow everybody. So that is what they used. That is how they twisted everything that Jesus was saying into that. The ironic thing is, Jesus was accused of doing the exact opposite of what he was doing. Jesus was accused of taking a political stand against Rome, but his very testimony and actions gave no proof of that, and Pilate saw that. Jesus was not political in his answers. He didn't have a bunch of witnesses to come up and take. He just sat there as accusation after accusation was levied against him. The leading priest It says there that they kept piling on accusations. Look, we know this because if you go over and look at another telling of this account, we see in Luke chapter 23, verse 2, Luke records, they began to state their case. Let's take this one out. This is a good one. This man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes, to the Roman government, and by claiming that he is the Messiah, a king. So not only did Luke record that he claimed to be a king, according to the Jewish leaders, but he told them not to pay their taxes. Woo! There is nowhere in Scripture where Jesus said that. I got news for you. Matter of fact, he said, pay unto Caesar what is due Caesar. He said, pay your taxes. Be good citizens. But they didn't care. They lied. And yes, people still do that today. So Pilate was surprised at Jesus' response. It says in verse 5, again, But Jesus said nothing much to Pilate's surprise. Now again, let's look at Pilate for a second. Pilate was the Roman governor. He ruled every day on everything. And all he would have to do is say guilty or free, he just, it was his decision. So he has seen plenty of innocent people standing before him begging for their lives. Men and women begging, please don't kill us. We are innocent. Please don't judge us. And then there have been some people that have been guilty that are still. Now, if you think that your life is about to end and you are about to be executed, That's going to be a pretty emotional thing for you, right? And so Jesus, Jesus, Pilate is saying this is weird because Jesus is staying there doing nothing. And I am sure that when Pilate looked into the eyes of our Savior, he saw confidence, he saw purpose, and he saw love. He wasn't used to seeing that. It got Pilate's attention. Jesus was standing there in his innocence, and he begged for nothing. And I am sure that Pilate saw the innocence and purpose 
as Jesus stared into his eyes. So as we look at this, in this clear picture of a fixed trial, I've already showed you ways that it was fixed and they were using lies. The thing that moves Pilate to consider Jesus' innocence is not what he said, but what he wasn't saying. Jesus was confident, and Jesus is looking at Pilate. He's looking at these religious Jews, and he knows in his heart what they don't know. He knows it doesn't matter what they say. God's plan is being fulfilled right before their very eyes. And regardless of what false narrative people have tried over the years to give to Jesus, his words remain true to this day and every day. So just a side note for context, between verses 5 and 6 here, where Pilate tried to pass the buck, so to speak, but he had Jesus shipped off to King Herod to rule on. But King Herod had no desire to weigh in on this. All he wanted to do, he said, Oh, Jesus, you're the guy that did all those miracles. Show me a few tricks. That's all he wanted to see. And when Jesus refused to do that, he sent him back to Pilate. In other words, don't waste my time with this. And so now we pick up the story in verse 6. Jesus, the innocent, was substituted for Barabbas, the guilty. We see in verse 6 it says, Now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner, anyone the people requested. One of the prisoners at the time was Barabbas. He was a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. So yes, Barabbas was a terrorist. He was who they were trying to paint Jesus as. It says in verse 8, The crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Verse 9, Would you like me to release to you this king of the Jews? Pilate asked. And so Pilate is finding his way out. He is finding his political uh, parachute, so to speak, to where I don't want to. I don't want to judge on this guy. I don't want to condemn this guy. So we can use this loophole to get to fix this whole thing. Verse ten said, "For he realized by now, talking about Pilate, for he realized by now that the leading priest had arrested Jesus out of envy." We see that every day. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, there are good politicians that are out there. There are good politicians that are representing us. And there are some very bad ones as well. We focus on the bad ones, but there are good ones. And I don't want to demonize them, but there are people on both sides of the political spectrum that use their constituents to get their way, but they can really care less about them personally. And that's the way they were treating Jesus. It says, again, in verse 9, he talked about, would you like me to release this king of the Jews? Verse 11, but at this point, the leading priest stirred up the crowd on demand and demanded the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. And Pilate asked them, then what should I do with this man you call king of the Jews? So as I said a moment ago, Pilate knew the Passover was a loophole. Pilate saw the Jewish leader's facade. He knew, it says there, that he knew that this whole thing was driven by the Jewish leader's envy. They were threatened. 
The false narrative had been accepted as truth among those that were there. The Jewish leadership wanted to push them further. Again, it was happening early in the morning, so it is very likely that everybody that is there had been kind of like uh, recruited by them to be there. It was a, a, a informed mob, so to speak. Much like today, people will go to social media and say, hey, we're going to be so-and-so place. Come out and, and, and march with us. So this was the, the low-tech version of that. And so as they are trying to decide whether Jesus or Barabbas should be let go, you see some of the religious priests and some of their, their helpers going through the crowd saying, pick Jesus, pick Jesus, pick Jesus. And so they're, they're, just, they're just making this whole right, this whole mob. Things that we see on our TV every day is happening right here. There's manipulation. There's a crowd that normally people wouldn't be there, but today they were. And it says in verse 13, They shouted back, Crucify Him! The same people that just a few days earlier were singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, praise Him! are now saying, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? The guy that is ruling on this is saying, I find no fault. I find no reason. You have no case. But the mob roared even louder. Crucify him! So, to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, He ordered Jesus to be flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. This is a situation Pilate was in. He, again, he knew this was the Jews thing. He had been pulled into this, and he knew if there was a mob and a riot that started under his rule, his higher-ups would have a problem with that. So he says, okay, let's roll with this. And what he was hoping is, I think, I think he was hoping if if I have Jesus flogged, in other words, if I have him whipped publicly, then maybe that will satisfy everybody. But no, that was not the case. The crowd almost became a riot. In hopes of appeasing the Jewish leaders, Jesus ordered the scourging. Now, the purpose of the flogging or scourging, whichever translation you have, the purpose of that is to soften up the victim. And when I say soften up, I, I can't even go into too much detail because it would be too horrendous. But basically what they would do is they would take the prisoner and they would bind his hands and they would put him on what would look like about a six or seven foot telephone pole and they would attach him to that and they would strip his back bare and they would have this cat of nine tails, what they called it. It would be a long rope or a long leather whip, and at the end of that leather whip, there would be like 10 to 12 smaller strands of leather. And in that strand of leather, on each one of them, there would be pieces of bone, pieces of glass. There would be uh, anything that could, uh, rocks, anything that could grab the skin of the victim and remove it from their body. That was the purpose of scourging. So they would... They would take that whip and they would put it and start at the top of the shoulders and yank down and it would lay all of that skin bare. And without getting too graphic, there were accounts that when that would happen, people's internal organs would be showing. Their bones would be showing. 
And so that is what Jesus endured even before He went to the cross. It was horrendous. I cannot imagine the bloodbath that it looked like. Before, we, we always talk about the crucifixion, but look at what has happened before that. The purpose of this punishment was to weaken the victim before they went to the cross. And so, next we see the Roman soldiers mocked an innocent man. In verses 15, or excuse me, 16 through 20, it says, The soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters, called the Praetorium, and called out the entire regiment. And this is just sickening. Maybe you've seen news coverage in modern day of when if somebody like a, in, in war over in the Middle East or even what the drug cartels are doing with people to make um, um, examples of them, they, they, were, they were mocking Jesus. They wanted everybody to see how foolish this was. And so we see what he does. The soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters. And then it says in verse 17, they dressed him in a purple robe. Again, the victims, they would have a sign on them wearing a sign of their crime. And so I'm sure that he had a sign on him that said, King of the Jews, and they were laughing at him. Some kind of king you are. Let's give the king a robe. Ha <laughs> ha, this will be funny. They dressed him in a purple robe and they wove branches into a crown and put it on his head. Then they saluted him and taunted him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him on the head with a reed stick spit on him, and dropped to their knees to mock, worship them. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe. I just, again, you may know this, you may not, but again, he had just been scourged. His, the back, his back looked like a pack of hamburger meat you see in the store. At best. And so all of that blood, all of those wounds, and they had put that robe on him. And so now they take that robe off and everything that is scabbed over, everything that has sealed up, is now open again. And put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. And here's the amazing thing, folks. The mocking that these soldiers did, they didn't know it, but they were actually confirming God's plan all along. You see, the robe usually meant, was meant for royalty. They probably just took an old piece of purple cloth, maybe from one of their uniforms, or maybe that somebody had laying around. It wasn't one of the, the very valuable purple cloths, because back then, if you had purple cloth, you were rich. Because that had this expensive dye in it, and it showed royalty, but this was not one of those things. The crown. If, you, if you've ever seen pictures of like the Romans and the, the Roman games and all that kind of stuff, you'll see, even in their sculptures, you'll see these leaders that have these, look like leaves around their, their head, like a, a crown of leaves. 
Well, they didn't use leaves. They used thorns. And I'm not talking about the little ones on your blackberry bush. I'm talking ones that are two inches or more. And then so they made this crown out of thorns, and then they took this reed stick, which was supposed to be his scepter, and beat it down on his head. So his crown, instead of being enthroned and encircled by, by jewels and rubies, it was his blood. That, drove, that, that reed drove those thorns into his head. And again, you might say, oh, well, that was Jesus. He was 100% God, but he was a 100% human. And I know this is uncomfortable, and I know I'm sorry, but if we just sit here and we look at a sterilized version of what Jesus through, we don't understand the horror that our sin has caused to make him go through this. They spit on him. I don't want anybody to spit on me now. Let alone everybody else spitting on him. When I, when I look at this and I read this, I want to weep. So, folks, how? When we're, we're singing good God Almighty or we're singing these hymns or we're singing these things to Jesus, how can we help but not praise him after all of the things that he's gone through? Is it too wrong to say we love you and thank you? The innocent Jesus was paraded around Jerusalem Jerusalem as a guilty criminal. They led him away to be crucified. Now, when they would lead someone away to be crucified, they just didn't take the most direct route. They made a mockery. They made a long parade showing what was happening. After the flogging or the scourging, the condemned person to be crucified was forced to march in a parade led by a centurion on horseback and a herald, or, or basically a town crier, saying, Hey, everybody, look, we've got the king of the Jews here. Just making fun of him, and they would just go through town and announce that. And they would shout the crime of the person condemned. And this was Rome's way of advertising a crucifixion. Why did they do that? Why did Rome advertise a crucifixion? Why did back in the old days, back in the Wild West today, bring families and children to hangings? Because they wanted to show people, they wanted to show the kids, and they wanted to show other people, you break the law, this is what you get. That's why they did it. So as Jesus is making this way to his crucifixion, it brings up another verse that I want to share with you. Many believe that this is the journey that Jesus was talking about when he says in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, where he says, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Listen, you entitled religious person, if you are in here and think that God owes you something, this is what you deserve. It's not about how much money you can have in your bank account. It's not how many titles you can have or how many nameplates you can have on buildings and things in one place. Why do we not want to understand that if we follow Christ, He was the suffering servant, and sometimes we're going to take heat for what we believe. And I don't know about you, but Think about this just for a second. And, and, and maybe this is too simple. Excuse me if it is. 
But if all that we're doing and believe about Jesus and everything that he did, if all of that was a lie, do you think the world would hate it so much? I don't think so. I don't think so. You are here today because God has worked in your life. And you follow Jesus. And I'm telling you that some days we'll get a crown. But to get a crown, we have to carry a cross as well. And we'll talk more about the cross next week. So the power of Jesus' innocence covers our guilt. I hope that the scriptures have painted you a picture of all that Jesus went through even before the crucifixion. When I look at this, I see I am woefully inadequate. And how am I worthy to have my sins covered and to be the reason that Jesus has done this? And the truth of the matter is, I'm not. But that's why there's God's grace and there's God's love. So then when we are in sin, my friends, don't take it lightly because this is proof that God doesn't do it. And so when you're watching your news and you're fussing with your people about your favorite or, or least favorite political impundent, or, or, and you're talking about all these things that's happening that you have no control over. Look, we're going to have to go to the grocery. We're going to have to pay what we have to pay. If we want to go anywhere, we're going to have to go to the gas station and pay what we want to pay for gas. We don't have, well, yes, we can vote and we can be a part of the democratic process, but we really have no other alternative other than to vote our conscience and do as much as we can to be a light to people in this community. But the truth of the matter is, is that sin in this instance was seeking to destroy Jesus. You realize if sin, if Satan could have discouraged Jesus enough to keep him off of the cross, we wouldn't even be here today. He was trying to sidetrack that. Sin is trying to destroy Jesus and he is doing something about it By dying for your sin and mine. And sin still tries to destroy the work that Jesus wants to do in your life. Even though Jesus died for your sins, you must accept him and gain his forgiveness for that. Whether it be for the first time as Savior or for the next time when you have followed him and then you've fallen. That's the thing about Satan, man. When you become a Christian... And you have that feeling of just, you know, I can take on hell with a water pistol. Everything is great. But then the first time you fail, that's when you start hearing, you are such a loser. How do you call yourself a Christian and still do these things? My friends, that blood that saved you will cover that sin and the next one and the next one. It does not mean that we can sin and not have any consequences, but it does mean that when we sin, if we are faithful and just, and if we go to God to ask forgiveness, He is faithful and just to do just that, to forgive us. When you look at what Jesus went through, how can you not know that as serious as an events as He went through, that is how much He loves you today. God, and, and don't take this the wrong way, this morning, I've read this and you have seen this and we have discussed this. God doesn't want your sympathy. 
He doesn't want you to say, oh, that is terrible. He doesn't want you to say, yeah, it's terrible. He wants your faith. He wants you to say, look, yes, this was terrible, but look at why I did this. As God, our creator of everything, have you ever thought about the fact that he's watching his son go through this? I have seen parents that agonize because their children are sick and they can't do anything about it. And yet here is God who can do something about it, but he doesn't because he knows that this plan has to come to fruition. It is not our sympathy that that God wants. He wants our faith. So please, if you do not believe in Jesus, today is the day to do that. Romans 10, 9 and 10 puts it this way. It says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised you from the dead or raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you have been made right with God. Not out of sympathy, but believing in your heart that you will be made right with God and by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. God's not calling us into the secret service, my friends. He's not asking us to put our faith on our our mantles at home. He's asking us, declare our faith that you are saved and declare it openly. My friends, let me ask you something. If we don't say anything, who will? Who will?